Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. From the offices of Create and Cultivate, this is Work Party, a podcast for women who are redefining the meaning of work on their own terms. In each episode, we tap experts on topics that matter most to the modern working woman, whether you are running the show or working your side hustle. We're bringing in leading female entrepreneurs to share their stories with you. Are you ready to create and cultivate the career of your dreams? Well, welcome to Work Party, the podcast. Be career FOMO with LinkedIn. LinkedIn makes it easier than ever to find fresh opportunities and to meet professionals looking to hire people just like you. It's important to always keep your network active and constantly seek new opportunities and possibilities. We're proud to have partnered with LinkedIn for season one of Work Party because they're all about making game-changing career connections, and so are we. Today's Work Party mini-sode is coming to you live from our Work Party tour stop in Atlanta, Georgia. I sat down with Lisa Price, founder of Carol's Daughter, the multicultural beauty brand that has a cult following. After getting a call from Oprah and multiple celebrity investors like Will Smith and Jay-Z, Lisa's business took off and she went on to sell it to beauty behemoth L'Oreal. We're breaking down the full story on how Lisa built her business from the ground up right at her kitchen table. So let's get right into it. Prior to doing this, what was your career trajectory and what were you doing? I worked in television and film production. I was a writer's assistant. No matter how many times I say writer's assistant, people hear assistant writer. So I've been credited as being a a writer on The Cosby Show, (laughs) a producer on The Cosby Show, and then I gave up this lucrative writing career to start a beauty company. No. I was a secretary, is what it would boil down to, (laughs) doing research for the scripts, taking notes while the writers wrote the scripts, because they would sit in rooms and kind of talk out the dialogue, and you would take shorthand notes and then go type it up. Um, So I did that for a number of years. I did production coordinating, and I did think that I was going to work in television production for the rest of my career until this happened to me. So you're doing that. You're at home. You're making these incredible fragrances and products. When did you take the leap and say, I'm going to do this full time? This is my new path. 
Well, I was pregnant with my first son, Forrest. He was born March 18th, 1996, and I went on maternity leave in February of 96, and I never went back to work because I realized the way that my schedule was at that time, I was working Monday through Thursday on a television show for Lifetime, and Friday to, to Sunday, I did Carol's Daughter, and every evening I did Carol's Daughter when I went home. So if I had a baby, which he, you know, he was coming any minute, um, when was I going to see him? <laughs> if I went to work and then came right. home and worked. And I figured that my paycheck would just end up going to the babysitter. So I took a chance and said, let me stay home and raise Forrest and see if I can do this and the business and make enough money to contribute to the household. So I think that's like one of the number one questions we get at Crate and Cultivate is how do I know when to quit my day job and then also managing the financial risk associated with it. Mm -hmm. So from that moment on, what, how did Carol's daughter grow from that moment? Is that when you're like, I'm taking it seriously, I got to like make this work? And did well, you bring I, on employees or? I didn't bring on employees right away, not at all. So I started in 93. Forrest was born in 96, so I stopped working in 96, and I didn't have employees until 99, 2000. Um, I had friends help me out mm -hmm. and family help me yes. out, um, you know, and I would beg my brother to do all kinds of stuff for me, and my husband helped me, um, but official on the books employees didn't happen until 2000. And it, it was an organic growth, um, and it was never about well, now I have to really take it seriously. I always took it seriously. I think what helped me, and a lot of people thought that this was a hindrance, before I started the company, I had filed for personal bankruptcy. And so being in that position, I wasn't in a position to get credit cards. I wasn't in a position to shop for cute things that I couldn't afford to pay for. Um, and I had to be really strict with my budget. When I worked in television and film production, I went from job to job. That's not a career that's usually permanent unless you happen to work on a news show. You, so you don't hear of people working in the industry on one gig for 25 years, let's say. So I was really um, strict about what I spent, when I spent, how I spent, because I never knew what the next gig was going to be. And I didn't realize that that was perfect training for becoming an entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, absolutely. <laughs> but that's what ended up happening. So the fact that I didn't have extra money to spend and that I didn't have a good credit rating when I started the business worked in my favor because it made me be much more disciplined and it made me really think about every single thing that I did. So if someone said, oh, you should rent a table at such and such conference because there's going to be so many people there. If I didn't have the $500 or the $2,000 to rent that table, I was not going because I couldn't put myself into debt to do something on a chance. I needed guarantees. Then um, that's not what always happens in business. That just happened to be my business story. But I think that's a great lesson in how you approach business because I think oftentimes, especially with people raising millions and millions of dollars, it's like, let's get the fancy office right away. Let's do all these things. But I think early on is when you need to be the most frugal to like mm -hmm. figure out how to get your business going. But let's cut to when you bring on investors like Jada Pinkett Smith and Jay-Z. So you're in your kitchen, you're making these products. 
Jada Pinkett Smith, Jay-Z. Tell us, <laughs> take us through this journey. <laughs> you know, I, I have to say that when I hear people say that, I say to myself, thank God I actually live this because it sounds <laughs> fake. You know, like it just doesn't sound real. And it's still surreal to me all these years later. Okay, so prior to becoming investors, Jada and Will were fans of the brand. And I did not know that they were fans for a couple of years because the orders would come from someone named, well, I thought their name was Jess Towns. We had a customer service uh, outsourcing thing that would take orders for us. And I would get all of these invoices for this person named Jess Towns. And I was like, Jess orders a lot of stuff. <laughs> I later found out that Jess was Jeff as in DJ Jazzy Jeff. <laughs> and he was ordering for Jada because he knew that Jada loved body care products of any type and any kind. Um, so one day I get this phone call from a hairdresser and he's like, hi, um, I work with Will Smith and I've been working on his hair for Ali and you know he has uh, longer hair, he has an afro and um, he mentioned to me that his wife gets some products from you. And uh, I just, you know, was calling because we wanted to place an order. We're on location. We wanted to get some things. And I was like, oh, okay, so what is he looking for? And the guy goes, yo, Will. <laughs> what do you want to get, man? And then Will Smith yells out stuff. And I'm on the phone like, oh, my God. <laughs> Will Smith's in the background. And he, you know, he mentioned some things and you know, I put together the order and I sent it. You know, so th this is the relationship that we had. Then in 2003, I meet a gentleman named Steve Stout. And Steve worked in advertising, music, well music business first and then advertising and marketing. And Steve knew Will and Jada and Jay-Z. And when he decided to partner with me and invest in Carol's daughter, he wanted to pull them together to be our investment team. And at the time, I didn't understand all this. I could tell this story so much better today. But his vision was having these powerhouse people involved because they attract attention and media. And if we do something with them, people will pay attention to it and photograph it and so forth. But what made it really work was the fact that they were customers. Mm -hmm. um, Will and Jada were customers. They, they were you know, using the products on themselves. They were using it on um, Willow and Jaden, who were so little. They're so grown now. <laughs> they were so tiny back then. Um, and Jay-Z wasn't familiar with the brand, but his mom was. His mom used to go to a loctician that bought products for me, so she knew about it. And Jay liked that I was from the same neighborhood in Brooklyn. So through Steve, we all came together and they invested in Carol's daughter. And I remember when the signature pages for the contract came through my then fax machine. Remember we used to have those? <laughs> and I just, I just stared at this piece of paper. It was Will Smith, Jada Pinkett Smith, Sean Carter. It's like, is this real? And I, I still feel like that. I still feel like that all these years later. It's a crazy story. It is. It really is. It's it really amazing. Is. I mean, number one, it's a huge testament to the product, obviously. Yes. But two, to the story. You know, mm -hmm. I think people were really drawn to that. So you were talking about bringing on investors. This is something 
a lot of entrepreneurs want to do, don't know how to do. What was that process like for you in, in learning about how it all works, you know, giving up equity, the whole thing? The first investor that I took on was Steve. And at the time that I met Steve, I guess about eight, maybe nine months before I met him, I realized that I was at a place in the business where I wasn't able to do anything more than what I was doing on my own. I had um, a warehouse, I had a store, I had a staff of about 20 people. We were making over two million in sales a year, and I had been on Oprah. And no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> you just kind of glossed over that. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't. I didn't mean for it to sound like that. No, it was amazing. <laughs> um, but I, I was. The reason that I, I read the list that way is I did a lot, right? And, but I didn't have cushion. Mm -hmm. If anything had happened where for some reason sales got suspended for two weeks, I don't know how I would pay bills. You know, I don't know how I would manage payroll. There was, everything was running and the money was there to take care of things on a day-to-day -day basis, but there was no cushion. And there were things that I needed to do. I needed to upgrade my labels. I needed to fix my website. I needed a new phone answering system because this was back when people called in orders because they didn't trust their credit cards on the, on the interwebs. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I needed all these things that I couldn't afford to pay for. And I said, okay, I guess this is, this is when you get to this point where you need someone else to come in. So I kind of opened my mind and opened my spirit to the idea of someone else coming in. And I began to have meetings with people. And Steve was someone that I met through a friend. And when we met, he was the first person who spoke to me like an entrepreneur. Mm. Because some people will say things like, are you ready to go to the next level? Because I don't have time if you're not ready to go to the next level. <laughs> And, it's, and so if you're going to start out like that, <laughs> peace. Uh, <laughs> but Steve was just, you know, he was like, I get it. I understand what you're doing. Everything that you need to do, you just need a check. You don't have a check to write for everything that you need to do. And he was speaking to me as if he had a tape recorder in my office and recorded everything that was going on. So um, I knew that he was the person to to help me and to partner with me. Later, when we took on equity partners, that process was a bit more difficult for me because I don't have like a big financial background. It was complicated, it was confusing. What's preferred stock versus common stock and you know all of this. And I have to say through both of those rounds of investments, the thing that really saved me was having good lawyers and good accountants. Those are really, really, really critical because none of us are gonna go to school and like do a crash course in business and accounting and be as smart as the people on the other side of the table negotiating the contract. So you gotta have lawyers and accountants in your team who can translate for you. Yeah, 100% bring in the experts if it's not your specialty. <laughs> So that's amazing advice. So I think t just a takeaway from that is if you're an entrepreneur and you're wanting to raise money, it's like wait till the last possible minute where you're like, I need, I can't do more than this unless I bring cash on. I think that's 
really good advice. I, well, I think it depends on the business, the business too. Because there are some businesses that are flashy and they kind of need the money up front. Um, and you got to walk in like a baller. You know, there, there, are, there are just businesses that are like that. So I think it depends on the business. But I wouldn't, if, if you're not in that type of flashy business, don't go too soon because all you have is your name and your brand and, and your, your intellectual property. So it's going to start getting diluted as soon as you take someone on that first time. So if I had gotten an investor five years in, then by the time I got to Steve and Will and Jada, how much would I have left to share with them? Mm -hmm. And then I have this other person that I have to have these conversations with. So I'm glad that I waited until when I did. And, and I had built a strong brand. And this is leading to another point. Intellectual property is super important. There's a lot of people who think that because they have a company and they have social media handles and they have a website with that name, they think that they have a registered trademark. Mm -mm. And they don't go through the process of registering their trademark. My first conversation with Steve's lawyer, he had a folder. And inside of the folder was a copy of the registration of my trademark from the internet, because he went and looked up to see if I owned my name. And that, having that, I can't even begin to tell you how much money that saved me and how much power it gave me in negotiating. Because I'm sitting at a table with millionaires. I was not a millionaire, but I had that intellectual property and that had value. Such good advice. I'm literally just over here like, yes, yes. But I, it, the trademark is so important and it's ex it's expensive. Like it can be expensive when you're getting your first trademark, but it's like even if you're literally starting your own website tomorrow, do it. It's so worth it in the long run, 100%. Mm -hmm. I hate seeing people scramble after they've launched a business because they haven't gotten it in the right category or whatever it might be. So let's go back to Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're featured on Oprah. Yes. Tell us everything. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I used to joke about it um, before it happened because I figured, what's the harm, right? So I used to say, well, you know, when I go on Oprah. Well, you know, when Carol's daughter is on Oprah. Well, you know, when Oprah calls. And then they actually did. <laughs> and, you know, you have these conversations with people. Now, I worked in television production, but I completely forgot, like, the protocol until I was into my, like, third or fourth phone call. And I realized that each person that I'm speaking to, like, I started with a production assistant, and then there was an associate producer, then a producer, then an executive producer. And I'm hearing the clicking in the background, and I'm like, oh, they're interviewing me. They're taking notes. They're, they're seeing if I have good sound bites. And, you know, so they're asking all the questions, and, you know, I find out that I'm going to be featured on the show, and the producer is coming to my home on a Saturday, and they need to film a B-roll package. And they said, we're not sure if you're going to be in studio. We're profiling women who started businesses in their homes, and their businesses are now making over a million dollars. So we may roll your package and have your package be a part of the story, or you may actually be in the studio. So, so on the phone, I'm like, okay. <laughs> and inside, I'm like, I have to be in the studio. I have to meet her. I have to be in the studio. 
So they come that Saturday, they spend like 12 hours with me and my family, and they take all kinds of footage in the house, outside the house. Um, and then I find out at the end of the day that I'm going to <laughs> Chicago to tape the show. And I can barely breathe. And um, I went to Chicago, and she, before I saw her, we're in the green room, and I'm looking at the walls, and, I, and I'm nervous, obviously. It's, it's over. Totally, I'm, yeah. I'm nervous. <laughs> and I'm looking at the walls, and I started to count the number of people who were on the walls that I had actually given product to who were guests on the show. And in doing that, I began to calm down, and I felt like God was speaking to me and telling me, you're supposed to be here. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Everything's going to go okay. Look at all of these people. They all know your stuff. They all have your stuff in their bathroom, and they've been here. You belong here. And I just kind of exhaled and went with it, and then I heard this voice, good morning, good morning, good morning. Well, that's like and a really good impression. <laughs> First of all. And she walks in coming from the gym, and she's like sweaty and no makeup and hair's not done yet, and she's like, I'm going to get ready, and I'll see you all shortly. Good morning, good morning. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's Oprah. It's Oprah. <laughs> and so we go to do the show, and my husband is sitting next to me, and he leans over, and he says, I'm so proud of you right now. And I was like, Gordon, I love you to death, but I am not crying. <laughs> Cut it out. I was like, I'm not shedding a tear unless she sheds a tear. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there trying to hold it together. And she introduces you know, us to the audience. And then she introduces the B-roll that they shot for me. So as it's rolling, which is what you would see at home, she's sitting on the stage. And she looks at the screen, and she's like, Carol's daughter? You're Carol's daughter? I know Carol's daughter. You're Carol's daughter? <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, Oprah knows me. <laughs> and so when the segment was over, she felt like she needed to explain to the audience why she had that reaction. So she says, oh, you would never guess who um, introduced me to your products for the first time, Halle Berry. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I remember. And she goes, you remember that? And I'm thinking... You're Oprah. <laughs> yeah, I remember. So I tell her the story about, you know, how the, the day that I, I was out of the office, I came back to the office, the guy who was working for me, he had a piece of paper, and he said, this person works for this person, whose PRs for this person, and they need a basket for this person. And all I could see on the paper was Halle Berry and Oprah. And I said, you have to say all of that all over again. <laughs> she laughs, the audience laughs. The show is over, and she takes the picture. You know, they, at the end of the show, she takes a picture with everyone. So she comes and she takes a picture, and she says, you know, I wasn't going to mention the Hallie thing because I didn't want to sound like I was name-dropping. But, right? Oprah. Um, like, <laughs> but I did, be, and I'm glad I did because you made it so funny. And I was like, oh, well, okay, thank you. And I'm thinking, like, are we friends? Like, <laughs> How could you name drop, you know? So I say all that to say, coming away from that, yes, there was um, 
increased sales from being on the show, but it wasn't like I did the show and all of a sudden we made a million dollars. It was something very manageable and, and sustainable and consistent, um, and it was a big help to the business. But on a personal level, I saw so much humility and authenticity in this woman that I had placed on a pedestal. And I realized that you can be powerful and strong and influential and still be a human and still be real. And she was such a good, and still is, a role model for me in how to be a good leader. That you don't have to become this other thing. You can be true to yourself and still be so powerful. And being on her show that early in the business also forced me to dream bigger. So I remember the next morning I woke up and I looked at my clothes, they were still hanging by the closet. And I was like, yeah, it happened. I, I was on that show because I was wearing that outfit. <laughs> um, and then I realized I had to dream a bigger dream because that one came true. And that was, that was an amazing blessing to be put in a situation to dream even bigger than that. There are no words. <laughs> there literally are no words. It's amazing. So cut to in 2014, you sold Carol's daughter to L'Oreal. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible acquisition. It's a, it's a huge deal. Yep. How did you know it was the right decision, right time? Well, I knew it was the right time because we had equity partners who came into the brand at the end of 2007. We closed December of 2007. And all of us know what happened in 2008. We had a recession. Oh. Oh, so that investment came in just under the wire, literally. None of us knew that that was coming. And my investors had been in for seven years. So they had wanted to exit within three to five years. But because of the slowdown that we experienced with the recession, they gave us extra time. So we knew that it was the time to look for a strategic partner to sell to. And we met with several. And L'Oreal was always at the top of my list. And we had a, an actual meeting with L'Oreal prior to officially being up for sale. They, they just wanted to like meet us. I, I refer to it as like the guy who just wants to go to coffee, like yeah. no pressure. <laughs> like let's just go, let's just meet at Starbucks. So we had one of those meetings and um, I knew when I walked in that I was gonna end up there. I just didn't know how it was gonna happen or when or because we weren't in a place yet to uh, be acquired. So when it came time to do the work to get there, uh, it was a lot of work within the company and then work on a personal level to fight the different battles that needed to be fought to get there, to be assertive, to negotiate contract after contract after contract, to not put myself last when I was negotiating for myself and for my personal contract. Um, to realize what I was giving up. You know, you, you get a piece of paper and, you know, it says something like, you know, you agree to sign over the rights to this and this name, and you can no longer use this name on a personal level. And, you know, like, well, no, no, sorry, not on a personal level, on a business level. And 
it was very um, not stressful in the, oh, should I do this kind of way? Because I knew that this was what I was supposed to do. I never doubted what I was doing because I knew that this was the path, but just the enormity of it and realizing that I had gotten to this place. And what is it going to mean to still be Lisa and not identify professionally as Carol's daughter? Mm-hmm. Um, which I still do today, because I, you know, I still work at the brand, but whenever I decide to leave L'Oreal and decide to do something else, I can't do that something else as Lisa Price, the founder of Carol's daughter. I have to do it as Lisa Price. So what does that feel like and what does that look like and are you ready to let that go? Um, so it was, it was one of the biggest things professionally that I've done in my life that I am supremely proud of because I know how much work it took for me to get there, for my team to get there, for the brand to get there, for my family to get there. And uh, even though I got some backlash for it, hey, I'm tough. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I personally can't wait to see what you do next. But I want to talk a little bit about the backlash. So after the sale, uh, longtime customers and fans were like, you sold out or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Well, first, I don't know that they were longtime customers and fans because internet trolls. (laughs) Uh, The worst, yeah. They don't know too many people. and some of them definitely were internet trolls. But for people who, who were fans of the brand, and I hope still are, I understood what it was that they felt. So at African-American people, we do not own a lot yet. We haven't had generations of wealth we have people in our lives and we have you know people that we we look up to and that we admire you know like a Will Smith or a Jada Pinkett Smith but Will is the first of his family he's not from generations of it it didn't come from his great grandfather to his grandfather to his father to him he is the first one and he has to pass that on to Jaden and Willow and they have to pass it on to their children and that is something that we don't have. So when we own something, we covet it. We don't want anybody else to have a piece of it because so much of who we are and what we have as a people has been stolen. So people wrote a story for me and they said, this is our brand and this is our daughter and this is our stuff for our hair and you're not allowed to give it to anyone else. And the assumption was that I sold out to get a check. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't sell out to get a check. I sold a business to satisfy the requirements of that business because I had equity partners who needed to be paid. You know, when you when you sell a, a home that you have a mortgage on, if you decide to flip a house, you're not selling out to the bank. You're paying your bills. <laughs> you're paying the more you're selling the house so you can pay the mortgage and hopefully you make a profit on it. So what I realized was within our community, we needed more experience in business. We need more experience understanding the dynamics of business because if a, a a white person starts a company, you know, or an app or something, you know, like the guys who started Instagram, they sold to Facebook for $780 million. Um, no one called them sellouts because white exactly. people do this. This is a part of 
their history and it's okay for them to do it. Black people have to make it okay for us to do that. It's okay to sell a business. That's how you get generational wealth. That's mm -hmm. how I start to build something, God willing, for my kids, and then they can build for their kids. So I decided to use all of that noise that was going on as an opportunity to teach and to educate and to you know, express that message that I understand where you're coming from and I understand how you feel, but this is a part of the process. And I understand that I wrote a different ending to your story, but mm. hey, guess what? It's actually my story. <laughs> <laughs> so I get to write that different Absolutely. ending. Absolutely. That's such such incredible advice, and it's something we actually talk a lot about at Create and Cultivate is the importance of w women making money and, and being millionaires Absolutely. and women hiring other women just because they have that money because I think there's been a lot of stigma for women making a lot of money and women feeling uncomfortable talking about money, mm -hmm. but I think the more women we have in power, in, in positions of power where they have budgets to spend, where they're making money, where they're selling companies, uh, the more women below them can come up and have that same experience. And so. And it's something that's going to be uncomfortable until it isn't. I mean, with what is it? Something like 50 years ago, a woman had to have her husband's permission to take out a loan. Yeah, that's it not might a be long less time. Yeah. that's not a long time ago. You had to, you had to have your husband's it's permission insane. to take out a loan. Can you imagine? <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> Um, well, I'm hogging you. We're going to go to some audience Q&A, so get your questions ready. But before we do that, um, I have some sentence finishers for you. Oh, okay. So get ready. Okay. To have a successful business in 2018, you need? Love. If I could tell my younger self anything, it would be? You are enough. The best business advice I ever received was? I was told that I was the truth and that nothing builds from a bed of lies. Have you bought your copy of Work Party the Book? Part career manifesto, part practical business advice, Work Party the Book is everything I wish I knew during my early years as an entrepreneur. The ups, the downs, the things I learned and the women that helped me to make it happen. Just like in our podcast, Work Party the Book does not shy away from the nitty gritty details you need to know. If you hope to start your own business or become the HBIC at your current gig, we're here to help you out. Available in hardcover and audiobook on Amazon, also on iBooks at Target and your local bookstore. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Work Party, the podcast. If you felt inspired and learned something new, let us know in a review on iTunes and check us out on social at Work Party. For every episode, we have downloadable resources available on workparty.com. So you can put these tips and tools into action for your own business. Thanks again for listening. And as always, work hard, party on. Mm -hmm.